We have a breaking news bulletin from Chicago. This just in. Spineless micropenis, Officer Eric Stillman, and embittered anemic Mayor Lori Lightfoot, along with raging alcoholic Super Wop and President of the Fraternal Order of Police, John Cotanzara, have all died slowly and painfully this afternoon, having suffocated to death trying to attempt the Duck Bar Deep Throat Challenge at Nancy Pelosi's annual Kente Cloth Orgy and Bacchanal that takes place each full moon in May. Details around the desk remain scarce, but no one needs to come. Trey has sent me this video. It's cool. I, I have no idea what it is. It's a comedy skit, right? It's Arbot and Costello, who's on first. So in the description, it says probably the most famous comedy. So I want to join the crew who know about this. So thank you so much to Trey for sending me this video and let's get into it. Bob Iger, thank you so much for joining us here today. You look at the profile of the company and the collection of assets and look where we're still living in we're, we're basking in the glory of Avengers Endgame and Marvel property great Marvel films coming out. But if you just look at the economy and you look at the, uh, the American consumer vision, you'd say everything is just great. And that's the man right now for these products because they are, they've just gotten so good. Alright, here we are. We're doing it. You and me. I'm John Dixon. I've been kind of uh, around the Chicago area doing programming here and there. Uh, writing a little for Cinephile. You know, I've done a little work with Odd Obsession, Chicago's one now defunct, uh, you know, video store. But this is where it's left me. And it's left me with my good buddy, Will. Greetings, all. My name is Willie Morris. I am a, I guess, freelance film programmer at this point would be the thing to call it. Do uh, whatever I can get my hands on. Every year I do the 24-hour horror marathon for the Music Box, uh, except last year, of course, we did a 31-day drive-in instead because we couldn't be inside, but hopefully returning in October this year. Look out for that. Otherwise, just, uh, you know, the way I like to say it, I'm afflicted with obsession for movies. And so, you know, what better way than to hang out with you and uh, bring some people on? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely afflicted, so... um... (laughs) This is just going to be kind of our repository for uh, gathering just the recess particles of uh, film culture that are just fluttering through the air, like that slow motion scene of Michelle Williams and Shutter Island. <laughs> yes. Um, now we're going to talk about the uh, Oscars coming up. I know you're excited about that. Oh, yeah, you know. All of all my favorite movies nominated as per usual. Big ones too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Big <laughs> movies that everyone has loved uh, has given them a new reason to see the world through different eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. It was the first thing that we worked on the the mall. Okay. Yeah. Because I was thinking it was that or the belly screen. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was uh, the mall first, which was a. Uh, a film collective in Los Angeles where I used to live. And uh, me and Mike Perry started that one. And 
we were uh, having a little trouble with some of our ideas and Mike immediately said, yo, I'll just text my dude, John, trust me, he'll fire back <laughs> real fast. And sure enough, you did <laughs> real quick with some great ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the first time, but we didn't, we didn't then meet for about another year or so um, when I moved out here. Yeah, you bought weed from me. Yep, bought weed from you and we talked about uh, watching Femme Fatale under the influence. <laughs> yeah oh my god that's right wow wow that's shit that's true about that. yep. um, yeah it was a great day because I, I you know i expected i would uh come in say hi meet you grab some weed whatever we hung out for like a good hour and a half two hours just talking shit so it was you know we were in it immediately i didn't feel like there were a lot of seeds and stems in that pack i feel like it was a pretty oh no it was good you, you took yeah. care of me all right well let's let's kick things off here uh, we got we got someone on the line here that uh, we're gonna talk to. My red is where I can film comment. Village voice. You're more recently on the realm of Substack, but you probably uh, already know this dude. It's Nick Pinkerton. Hello, fellas. Welcome. Dude, how's New York right now? Oh, it's great. It's fantastic. I mean, um, outside of the continual like destructive of everything that one knows and loves uh there has been a enjoyable undercurrent uh of creative ferment and uh general general good vibes uh, at least among the uh small cabal that uh, i've been trying to uh keep things alive with during uh the last year of trials and tribulations the weather is turning sun is shining birds are singing Patio season's right around the corner then. Finally. My gorgeous patio. <laughs> I mean, I know that you got the beaches open, right? You can go surfing. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. <laughs> no, I, 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 am, I am in point of fact, though I hesitate to reveal this information knowing that uh, there are assassins lurking around every corner, but uh, I am I am quite the beach bum come, uh, come <laughs> weather. I won't say where you can find me, <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, I will be there. Hell yeah. Well, here in Chicago, we, we just had ours reopened by our esteemed mayor, uh, Lori, Lightfoot. Lori Lightfoot, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I admire her so much. She's been absolutely the shit during all of this. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. We we love her so much. Yeah, it's uh, you know, this is uh, not not since uh, the Jordan Bulls has Chicago seen just uh, such a such an absolute rain of total <laughs> total expertise and excellence. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I you know, without a doubt, on the uh, like local, state, and federal level. We've absolutely crushed the last year. <laughs> that, yeah, not a single thing to second guess that I, you know, I can think of. Uh, yeah, no, not at all. You, you're under incredible leadership. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have you been watching recently? Uh, let's see. I mean, last night, um, last night uh, watched a uh, 1987 Hong Kong movie. Uh, called People's Hero, um, starring uh, starring a young young Tony Leung. Oh, um, I've been filling in some gaps. Uh, uh, this filmmaker Henri Duquan, uh, probably best known for a movie from 1955 
this sort of policier movie called uh, Razia sur la Chenouf. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I actually did a commentary track on it, and I think it's not a bad one, but I had far less grounding in Dequan studies than uh, perhaps I should have, and I felt a little uh, guilty about that. So I've been going back and uh, plugging in some holes there. I mean, it's a pretty... <laughs> Every night if I'm watching something, and usually I either have heavy viewing nights or nights where that is not uh, not going on at all. But it's a pretty like pick and mix approach. Um, I've also been like plowing through a lot of like Poverty Row uh, thriller noir uh, films, which are sort of perfect for someone like myself who has a sort of limited attention span for home viewing. Mm -hmm. I, I can be an absolute absolute machine in a theater context but anything capping over two hours is a little difficult for me at home I sort of need that uh, need that sensory deprivation tank thing that a theater provides in order to enter into certain worlds let's say so you know these like 68 minute very down to brass tacks like two shot poverty row noirs that are very sort of pungent and mean-spirited and have a kind of low rent uh junky quality of danger about them these have been like very you know very good for sort of capping an evening i guess um and you know i'm i'm, I'm covering the waterfront I watched, um, I think, Night Before Last, this 1946 title uh, directed by uh, William Bodine called Don't Gamble with Strangers, uh, oh, which is title. among the sort of poverty row uh, noir that I've been uh, been uh, ripping through for uh, the esteemed monogram pictures. A very strong, uh, very strong entry starring mm -hmm. one Kane Richmond. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the king of the card sharpers and Bernadine Hayes as uh, the woman who he teams up with um, and they go together to this small town with an, a, a small town that I should say is in the midst of a sort of industrial boom with the intention of taking all of the nouveau riche around town for every penny that they're worth. And she gradually develops a conscience about their uh, operation, which she does not. This being uh, kind of expedited by the fact that he gets eyes for uh, a, a uh, wealthy young woman or soon to be wealthy young woman and uh, yeah, high drama all around. So if you're, are you close to becoming like a full on Bodine defendant or... <laughs> I mean, you know, I I got I got a lot of territory to cover before I can uh, claim myself to be a Bodine expert of any kind whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, Fair. And but you know, these are uh, it's kind of a, a a bottomless trench of these things, and, uh, and I'm working working my way through bit by bit. I mostly ask because most like. I hardly log on to the internet these days, but when I do, I'll usually see a Nick Pinkerton tweet. I'm so happy to discover that we had both 
revisited picnic on the grass at the same time um, yeah yeah i mean that uh, I, I i was for whatever reason like absolutely bulldozing through the like latter latter days renoirs i mean it's not actually for whatever reason because i was doing commentary tracks for uh la fille de l'eau um his first feature and his second nana for kino lorber and even though it seems like somewhat counterintuitive to go into working on something about the first couple of Renoir pictures by watching, you know, the last half dozen or so, particularly in the case of Nana, it was very useful because I think Nana has quite a bit to do with those return to France movies that Renoir made in the 1950s, especially Elena et ses hommes, Elena and her men. Um, and I guess because I was watching those, felt some like uh, drive to just sort of keep going into the late 50s, early 60s output. And yeah, um, I mean, that and the Elusive Corporal were both really invigorating rewatches um in a pretty like dispiriting time and you know particularly with the picnic in the grass this sort of nightmare image of technocracy quashing out uh, all natural human impulse which is you know something you can find kind of throughout uh Renoir uh but are you know articulated maybe more bluntly than it often is is just absolutely like tonic viewing like ice water uh for the soul oh for yeah, sure perfect way to put it <laughs> mm -hmm. i had noticed that and i don't remember how long ago this was but i i knew that i had to ask you a very serious question about something you had been watching um and that was uh it seemed like you were going through the filmography of the classic duo Abbott and Costello I was yeah what were yeah you, what did you deep dive into there well I mean part of it was because that box set uh of all the universal films appeared and I was doing that for uh sight and sound just doing a piece on that and it was also hmm. for pleasure um as I as I am a fan um so, I mean, there was a professional, there was a professional pretext, but like, as with most things that I do, um, the desire to do something precedes the, uh, precedes the assignment. So, you know, I, 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 by natural inclination, uh, would enjoy going chronologically through the entire or very nearly entire Abbott and Costello filmography. Um, and if I can have some financial incentive to do so, however, however meager, I mean, because, you know, with something like this, the actual like breakdown of like how much you're getting paid for hour per hour to watch like, you know, 20 Abbott and Costello uh, films and then file like a thousand word piece and like pull 200 bucks from that. It's, it's beyond, you know, degrading. There's not a, <laughs> you know, not a ditch digger in America who, may, who makes fucking less money. 
I mean, not that there aren't ways to do better, but this is like a purely like sort of punitive uh, measure to uh, to enact on oneself. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I won't say that uh, there were any huge surprises. The boys come out of the box pretty strong. There's a little, uh, little dip in quality come the middle 1940s and there's a definite taper off, but I'm an enormous fan of the two seasons of the Abbott and Costello show, which uh, I think is sort of a pure distillation of the qualities of the duo. And it's also, how to put it, like the gags are so shop worn at this point that they're like yeah. pushed, pushed to a level of near surreality um (laughs) and there is like an extra added element of grotesquerie uh that comes from the fact of everybody uh visibly entering like late middle age and Abbott and Costello are already particularly Bud Abbott already like a fairly uh difficult proposition for a modern viewer is in terms Mm. of uh being kind of off-putting screen presences um, for one raised in a time in which there is some expectation of like basic charisma or relatability, the kind of (laughs) dry, uh, imperious, sexless, puritanical nastiness of a Bud Abbott is (laughs) sort of difficult to, uh, to, to explain the appeal of, I think, to many a modern viewer. Uh, it's like, no, th- these are like actually the top box office draws <laughs> for like several years running. The like yeah, s- squealing porcine little man. And there's, you know, this, this dusty, joyless, cruel sort of taskmaster. And it's, it's like, why are they even friends? What is, like, what is this bizarre, like symbiotic relationship that uh, exists between them? So it's already like pretty, pretty, pretty strange stuff in, you know, 1943. But then, you know, when you get into the middle 1950s, these guys are like a little older, heavier, have lost a step. You got Joe Besser like running around in like little Lord Fauntleroy costume. <laughs> it's just really like twisted. This is, you know, like Boonwellian uh, prime time. If you go through uh, like the various databases compiled by Abbott and Costello heads, it's, you know, they, they break down the movies in the way that like a play by play guy breaks down a pitcher on the mound. It's like, okay, that's, there's the slider. Okay. Here's the high heat. Like they have this like basic toolkit. It's not to say that there aren't like variations and they're not introducing new material, but like there is this like vocabulary of Abbott and Costello bits that are running from film to film in different forms. Yes. And there are like new things, but like expecting any given Abbott and Costello film to be like a holy a thing unto itself of pure invention. That's not really part of the game whatsoever. It's, you know, seeing these same bits being repurposed or, you know, turned on their head or, you know, used in, uh, 
new if not necessarily innovative ways and yeah i, I think if you're uh, if you're attracted to the world of abbott and costello which i think we all should be but you sort of understand that that's part of the uh part of the contract i once watched hold that ghost coming down from acid with my ex-girlfriend and it turned me around pretty quickly <laughs> hold I that mean, ghost is a very important film no doubt yeah um but yeah, that was, I mostly just wanted to touch on that, but I guess we could move on to your book really quick here. Yeah, I mean, we could, yeah, we could. So, um, yeah, you got a book, which is finally arrived stateside. I finally have my copy. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, 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 it took the long way around the Cape of Good Hope to get here. Um, I mean, and it was, uh, an interesting thing to come from, from Germany, but to like see, and people people will pop into the timeline to tell me that they've arrived and they were getting to like much further afield ports of call well before they were uh, arriving in the good old US of A but I'm glad that glad that they've finally uh, finally uh, disembarked the book doesn't just chronicle the movie itself it um, touches on a lot of the disappearing on the horizon, movie-going culture at large, shuttering of movie houses, um, the fading spotlights, international filmmakers. There's even a brief history of the wuxia genre. Um, there's just a lot of things that circulate in this book that make it, as they say, a must-buy. And even touches upon the disappearance of, uh, like, the cruising scene in movie houses, which was very interesting. So there's all these things going on in here. You, you do point out that movie-going can be a little horny. Well, I mean, uh, really, really helpful for that aspect of things was a book that I refer to several times in uh, in my own, which is uh, Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, um, because you know the, the 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 experiences described therein are not uh, not ones that I know terribly well. Um, and I need uh, I need an expert and Delaney's way not only of describing his experience cruising in the deuce in the 60s, 70s and 80s and the gradual disappearance of that scene due to the very active rezoning and rebuilding of Times Square. Um, a lot of what Delaney is talking about correlates i think to some of the ideas that are very present in goodbye dragon inn so that became a extremely useful key for unlocking things i should mention that the current amc empire that stands on the south side of 42nd street was as part of this renovation or gussying up of Times Square, was moved a few hundred feet from where it had previously stood. And it, <clears throat> the task of moving it um, was accomplished or appeared to be accomplished by two giant inflatable figures of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello <laughs> because they had first performed together on stage in the theater that is the present day AMC Empire. Wow. So it's all connected, man. Damn. 
Oh, wow, that's crazy. I'm glad that we touched on Abbott and Costello before that. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah didn't expect that connection. <laughs> um, uh, do you remember the first movie you got some in? Uh, I, I will not answer that question, but this is... Um, <laughs> This is this is a this is a series that uh, I've talked about with uh, friends before. It would be a like guest curated series, and you'd have this like totally disparate jumble of movies, and each one would be introduced by a different presenter. And the entire premise is these are just movies that people have gotten either jerked off or fingered in and everybody would just come in and uh you know say you know i'd like to introduce event horizon which uh, you know kind of gave the game away there and <laughs> this is yeah so you just have this just totally like you know Krippendorf's tribe like uh followed by uh you know follow that ghost for example followed by who knows uh-huh Oh, it's a great series. I hope you do that someday. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think I don't think the rep scene is ready yet. For <laughs> they will be sort of advanced ideas that uh, I'm slinging. I think mine was Rollerball. That's I mean, this it was either Rollerball or Scooby Doo. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was Double Take. I think that was my. Favorite. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, I think I was Slither. <laughs> uh, wait, Double Take. What is Double? That's not the Eddie Griffin. Oh, okay, okay. Nah, I, thought, yeah. I thought the like Choi Hark uh, Van Dam picture. <laughs> no, I, I'd be so riveted by Double Team. If any <laughs> any harlot were to reach for my <laughs> zipper, I would bat her hand away. <laughs> that movie's wild. I just, just rewatched it. <laughs> and that tiger, the tiger's mm. in a lot of that yeah. last scene. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, there's really nothing like having your. Your jeans reached for it when P.O.D.'s uh, came to rock the party all night long, kicked off. <laughs> P.O.D., they were, uh, they were Christian gentlemen, P.O.D., if memory serves. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They, they did come to rock the party, but they made a point of letting you know that it was kind of a clean party. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I remember well, they said, don't want to get caught messing around because a party ain't a party if it gets shut down. <laughs> Which is true. Like, no bad stuff. It's a clean <laughs> oh, rocking party. Um, what else do we have on the docket here? Um, Hit me with that docket. One thing that we've been talking about that I think is pretty unique right now is the, um, the fact that, yeah, you are stuck at home right now. You're watching movies. I mean, occasionally we get out there when someone rents a theater. I mean, I just saw Godzilla versus Kong in a theater by myself and I had the worst time ever. But I don't know if that's changed, just like the fact that the movie sucked so bad or that it was, um, I guess, what do you see about your own movie going habits having changed? And I know you wrote a piece that kind of talked about this and I just want to read the quote real quick that you said um, at the threshold of adulthood movies can provide a vantage very often a deceptive one on what lies ahead a means through which to fantasize and to rehearse for real life they can offer a preamble and anticipation and you talked about kind of getting back into that mindset right now do you I, I yeah I'm, I, yeah I mean I'm now remembering the the piece in question and 
this was fairly early on in uh, the current Michigas when mm -hmm. I really, really had been immured in my apartment. And I felt like at that time that I was having a particular experience of movie watching that was closer to what I remembered from adolescence uh, than I had had for a very, very long time because I didn't have anything to speak of that constituted a life, <laughs> you know, like the, the entire, um, the entire uh, process of socialization, which is quite a precious one to me, had been taken away. And like, suddenly you do feel like a kind of, you know, 13 year old shut in with like a stack of four VHSs every night that you're um, just buffaloing through. And all of the sustenance that you draw from your day-to-day -day life, your relations with other people, or at least a great deal of that sustenance like was not there anymore. And I've you know, felt very like reliant on movies for that. And it's not a, it's not a way I particularly like to feel. I mean, I, I much prefer the like adult relationship that uh, I developed towards films where you know it's not the like single outlet it is something that um exists alongside my lived life and certainly augments my lived life in many ways it's not like i'm like sitting at home watching films and like getting like extremely moony or sentimental or attached to you know some lady who I find attractive in the thing and like building, uh, building these like adolescent uh, fantasies. Like that's, I, I don't like that, but it was sort of interesting to, I think, re-experience that like total reliance on films as an outlet and a way to connect to the wider world or fantasize about an idea of the wider world and total absence of the things that one hopefully obtains as you cross the threshold of adulthood. I mean, I think, I think what the last year really elucidated for me is how vital theatrical movie going is to me in many ways. And it's not to say that I haven't had a very fruitful and often enjoyable year and change of film going or movie watching, let's say at home. But among other things, there's like a whole category of films, as I mentioned, that are kind of cut out for me. Um, for example, Goodbye Dragon Inn. I, I, it's a movie that I can re-encounter at home and have several times as you can well imagine but it is a category of film that i find sort of hard in my living room and i you know i know this is a very sort of spoiled attitude to have but you know in point of fact i do live in new york city and not by accident um and not because I particularly enjoy the quality of life, but because the access to these kind of 
film going experiences is extremely important to me. Um, and, you know, I know my case is fairly unusual and I know it is uh, not something that everyone has access to. And I don't want to in any way sort of suggest that those experiences are second rate or anything like that. But for me personally, uh, that is a very sort of paramount way of going, you know, going to a theater is a very paramount way of encountering uh, works, period, full stop. And I think because, because we've gone through this uh, sort of flattening everything down to the, a, a thin rule called content, it's easy to lose sight of the things that are individual about theatrical movie going because we tend to do our zoom chats and watch series television and watch YouTube and watch films on the same device. There is this sense that all of them are jockeying for position, uh, on the same level, but I, I do think that there is something enormously singular about the experience of theatrical movie going, and I felt myself tremendously saddened at the loss of it. And you know, it's not that I'm not continuing to view things diligently and tick off boxes and go down whatever little rabbit holes of research happen to you know catch my passing fancy at a given moment, but. I have felt something very, very absent. Now, on the flip side of this, the first movie that I saw in theaters once uh, our generous governor had allowed residents of New York City to reoccupy the multiplexes, the first movie I saw was this thing, Chaos Walking. You know this uh, thing? The, yeah, I've heard of this thing. It was so this the... is like... Yeah, it's like YA adaptation. It's been like in the can for like three plus years and went out with a bunch of pals to see this thing and this very like, you know, whatever. For just whatever's on, it's time. It's time to break the seal. Uh, how this was landed on, I'm not certain entirely. And within, you know, there's this initial like period of elation to be in this in big multiplex barn, in fact, the AMC Empire. And after about 10 minutes, that started to like drain away. And you just remember like, oh shit, this stuff was fucking horrible before. Like this just like totally asexual, lugubrious, limping, over-budgeted, under-inspired, by-committee, multiplex trash. Like because, you know, by virtue of like, a year off you just think anything's gonna like hit like any fix will do and it's like oh man what a fucking what a grim reminder that such is not in fact the case and it's like and this uh, you know I, I guess i prattle about this a bit in the introduction of the book um and i've certainly been prattling about it in various other venues since you know any catastrophe and I don't think there's any way you can qualify the last year other than as a catastrophe doesn't like create 
problems out of nowhere. It exacerbates existing problems. And the fact that there was already something profoundly rotten in popular film culture, um, I think will only become more clear through, uh, yeah, as we sort through the, the, the dust and debris of the last year. Um, and, you know, particularly the manner in which the entire longstanding method through which large studio films has been rolled out is potentially to be changed by what's gone on over the last year. And I wonder if this is not a like emperor's new clothes sort of situation where the utter bankruptcy of this content becomes clear when if you take away the context of uh, of theater and uh, punishing sound system, who the fuck wants to watch some of this stuff? Like who, who wants to pay fucking 50 bucks to be pummeled by Mulan at home. I suspect actually remarkably few people. There's the potential for to people to realize the beast that's been walking in front of them. This yeah, for time. sure. Um, do, you, do you think that uh, I've been thinking about a lot people being more willing to take risks that normally aren't during this time as far as what they're watching? Um, do you think that in the world of like repertory cinemas and art house cinemas and all of that, we're going to see potentially a, a push to get, you know, even be more open and be more weird as, as people who normally were not necessarily risk takers in the movie world seem to be it's doing gonna, that a bit more. I think it's going to take a hard, uh, it's going to take, I think a long while to get a grip on what changes have been wrought in the repertory world and i've heard some compelling and interesting ideas about what those might be eventually but in the immediate future i think it's going to be very very conservative because you have theaters that in many or even most cases have pretty narrow margins that they're operating in and when you're dealing with limited capacity, for, uh, when you're dealing with you know, maybe concessions being off the menu, when you're dealing with all these things that make those make hitting those margins all the more difficult, you're just going to go with sort of tried and true things that are going to move people through the turnstiles. And that's like pretty understandable. I think it will be a while before, certainly for institutions that are paying for shipping prints, you're going to be seeing far fewer prints for a while. I hope not forever. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the argument has been made and was made by a guy called Steve McFarlane, which I thought was an interesting one, that because there has been this creation of these various sort of home home cinema uh, experiences where various theaters have their like online element um, that in, it's going to become only more difficult to get people out and you'll be depending more on rare materials, i.e. prints, or you'll be dependent on in-person appearances. 
And yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of logic to that. I'm also extremely wary of that because I'm wary of anything that takes film going further and further away from the basically casual experience that it is and makes it more into a very sort of specialized bespoke experience, not to take anything away from in-person appearances or these various other like value added elements. Um, but if it becomes a matter of every screening, repertory screening, having to have some like little extra to put it over the top and that's reflected in prices and that takes the thing further and further away from something that it's already gr grown quite far from, which is this basic egalitarian idea that it is this sort of untucked slobo medium, which is what I like about it. Um, I, yeah, I feel a, a certain anxiety about that possibility that, you know, I, I, I like, <laughs> I like about film going the fact that it is generally not something as opposed to, I don't know, going to the theater as if I ever do that, but you know, something that you're not planning a week in advance that you're seeing what's on and you're rolling out and, you know, an hour before and you run into whoever you run into that like basic, uh, basic leisurely quality. Uh, I would miss so terribly. Um, and I hope it is able to retain that. But I mean, that's something that has been drained out of life entirely uh, through the course of the last year. The, the, the days of a like complete forward retrospective on 35 are just gone. It's a huge yeah. drag and I wish it wasn't the case, but you know, purely pragmatically, that's, that's not a thing I expect to be seeing in my lifetime. You know. Yep. Unless I happen to be, I don't know, a, a handful of festivals that uh, really have both the funding and the commitment to pursue that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. can speak to what the developments that I've seen over the last decade have been, um, which have been a overall move with you know, some slight variance uh, of the major studios to follow the template established by Bob Iger's Disney, that is investing in IP, putting out a much smaller slate of titles, um, but investing a great deal more in each of those titles rather than that, like, rather variegated release slate that was the world of my youth. And you know, I'm not going to like romanticize it over much, but you at least did have a fairly wide, uh, wide swath of titles coming out uh, that were attempting to address uh, a lot of different demographics and uh, attempting to work in a lot of different uh, genres and now you have kind of a world of super movies largely uh, based on extant IP all of them looking to hit that target of you know creating a franchise and being able to roll through a, 
uh, and fresh cycle of tent poles. Um, and it's, it's, I just don't care. It's, and it's really quite depressing because that is my point of entry, like total multiplex rat, totally omnivorously gobbling down all that garbage. Um, in addition to, uh, I think, other other things in addition to like trying to piece together some uh clumsy idea of film history but i just don't fucking care i don't care like the 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 output of the major studios not to say that there aren't a handful of figures who have managed to like continue operating within that system and doing things of interest there are there are certain performers who I'm interested in, certain filmmakers that I'm still interested in who are working on that level. But in the main, I don't care. I could not fucking care less. Um, and if there is some catastrophe other than the catastrophe that uh, has affected absolutely everything, but if there is some hard and fast proof that this formula isn't effective, then... I imagine as any good businessman, that formula will be tweaked and uh, it will be considered that this carpet bombing with IP uh, is not the most effective way to meet your expectations for the quarter. Um, but if it's if it continues to work as it seems to have been uh, the last year notwithstanding, then it's just not a thing I'm interested in. And I don't feel any desire to participate in it on any level i want to clock out as completely as possible and spend my remaining days on this earth the uh, pursuant of things that are more in line with my interests and what i care about so you're not gonna watch space jam a new legacy so, so, you know. <laughs> no no <laughs> I, there's a lot of Abbott and Costello movies too. Well, I've exhausted those, but I can always just take it from the top again, you know. I mean, yeah, probably sitting through One Night in the Tropics is the scenes without them is Abbott and Costello is going to be preferable to yeah <laughs> sitting through uh, Space Jam: A New Legacy. Yeah, I'm just into the B stories and uh, Abbott and Costello. I don't, I, <laughs> those guys kind of bug me, but. Uh... <laughs> I just like the light romantic subplots. <laughs> I'll just start editing like that version. <laughs> Big super like Patrick Knowles, Andrew's sister yeah. scenes. That I'll do the do the like uh, Chico scenes and uh, all of the all the Marx Brothers movies. Yes. <laughs> yeah, damn. I say Zeppo Marx. I mean the Chico scenes are you know whopping it up. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Space Jam New Legacy, I though, find very uh, ripe to discuss right now. One, since we're talking about IPs, that that sh I, I did watch the trailer, and that's probably all I'll see of it. But um, boy, that sure looks a hell of a lot like Ready Player One. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Except with, I mean, I don't know. I haven't. I mean, that's the thing that really fucking bugs me. Is on one hand, I have a sort of basic learned distrust of these things at this point of these mega movies on the other hand i am uh i try to be a diligent follower of 
the you know the Andrew Saris uh, forest versus trees critic thing, and to be a trees critic, and to not you know just issue these sweeping denunciations and try to know what I'm talking about. And my initial response to Space Jam to whatever the fuck the subtitle is my initial <laughs> a, new a new legacy yeah a new legacy my initial response to it as somebody who i think has a fairly good grip on what these sort of movies are at this point is exactly that like this this looks very much like a sort of ready player one-esque like mulligan stew of pop culture but done with far less introspection and intelligence and craft. That's my initial response. Then the like the 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 voice of Andrew Saurus is like, yeah, Nick, you're being a forest critic. You can't <laughs> talk about Space Jam 2 unless you watch all you know whatever two hours 27 minutes of it. Oh, God um, God I, fucking, I hate it. I hate it because <laughs> you try to get out and they keep drawing you back in. <laughs> Well, you know, I do want to be a conscientious person, and I want to extend the benefit of the doubt to Space Jam too. So, I mean, it's once a, you get bitten so many times, though, it's hard to keep going back. <laughs> Space Jam too, but it's a safe place this time around. There, there's no Peppy. Uh, Peppy's gone, but you got the the Clockwork Orange characters. So, yeah. <laughs> Will, do you want to ask a question while I run to the restroom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll be right yeah. back. I mean, in the meantime, uh, I'm always curious uh, for people who work so much in the world of essay writing and commentaries and things uh, for these home video releases that we're getting um, a lot of, you know, if there's anything, yeah. obviously, I understand when you can't talk about shit yet, but if there's anything you're excited about, you know, coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, I did a, I did a commentary for Cecil B. DeMille's 1947 Unconquered. Oh, um, I mean, I, I, I will say the two Renoirs, I think, are both quite good, and the mm -hmm. Nana one maybe the notch above that. Um, but the DeMille one was fascinating. And what is interesting, I think, about these particular jobs of work is it is not always the greatest film that makes for the most uh, illuminating research process. And it's a, a it's a hefty movie, as the DeMille epics tend to be, running a good two and a half hours. And that's a lot of airtime to fill. Um, but there is so much stuff that I found on it. Not only the usual pre-publicity puff pieces mm -hmm. that would run on most studio A pictures and are definitely going to run on a DeMille picture because he was nothing if not a great like Ballyhoo artist. Yeah. So not only do you find all of this stuff, um, but DeMille is so active a public figure at this point. Um, the making of the movie and the release of the movie correspond to the ramping up of HUAC in Hollywood mm -hmm. um, and the um, the acting of not only DeMille, but the film star Gary Cooper 
as friendly witnesses in HUAC trials that are happening in DC in October of 47, the year of the movie's release. Howard De Silva, who's going to be blacklisted uh, shortly thereafter, plays the film's heavy. There's just so much stuff on the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also sort of epitomizes both the great and the noxious in DeMille's filmography. Uh, you know, the teeming crowd scenes are quite magnificent. There's a siege, the siege of Fort Pitt in uh, Pontiac's Rebellion that is reenacted, which is up there with the siege of Acre and uh, DeMille's The Crusades. All of this is extraordinary. It is also one of the most viciously anti-Native American films that I have in recent memory seen. I, as somebody who is a pretty like strenuous defender of the Western and you know has occasion to have conversations where it's like, you know, there's actually a great deal more going on here. And, you know, certainly there are some you know, pretty crude and blunt stereotypes, but there's quite a bit more, you know, nuance at work. And, you know, watching this movie, it's like, uh, this is like what, this is what everybody, this is what people who hate Westerns think every yeah. Western <laughs> is like. Yeah. Like the, you know, Native American characters, like the, it's, this uh, chief played by uh, Boris Karloff, who are just like the most total, like, booga booga savages. Yeah. And so, I mean... <laughs> There are very, very, I think, legitimate issues that uh, one can have with the film. But if you're just going at it uh, as a research project, God, there's so much there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed that one quite a lot. Oh, I'm excited for that one. Uh, we, we also wanted to ask you the, uh, you know, the endless rumor mill of uh, the forums and the weird corners of the internet and all of that. Uh, I recently stumbled across a bunch of uh, nerds battling about whether it was true that you did a commentary for Wolf of Wall Street for Arrow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That should be, I think it's out. I think that should be a known quantity at this point. Yeah, I did that with Glenn Kinney. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done, I've done a few with Glenn in the past i mean i've definitely gotten much more i guess like tightly scripted with these things uh, through the years and i'm not sure if that's a good or bad development necessarily but um i do enough of them at this point that i just don't feel comfortable going in extemporaneously and mm -hmm. kind of riffing not that i was ever like doing that exactly um, but this was kind of interesting because the possibility is not really there to like kind of hit things beat by beat in the way that I've grown accustomed to doing. So, you know, we're like, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's like the, the, the blue mask, just, uh, doing guitars, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, jumping back a little bit to what you were talking about with, uh, when films have, you know, at times inarguably upsetting or offensive things or whatever, um, you know, which of course 
gets more light on it these days than it has in the past. Um, I was thinking about it this morning also when I was reading your uh, essay for The Long Gray Line and you talking about uh, how much people miss out on, you know, if they think of, if they're thinking John Ford and it's just thinking jingoistic or if they're going the other way and the importance of uh, balancing, you know, being able to have all of the different sides and opinions in your head. Um, I'm just curious in your, you know, just in your everyday life, prior to obviously how we've been living <laughs> the last yeah. year when you're out in the world, you know, like, do you find people pushing back on that at all when you're talking about these films that are potentially, you know, more complicated or whatever we want to call them? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the way that the conversations that I have in the everyday world, and part of this certainly has to do with the fact that I'm, I'm conversing with people who want to converse with me and hopefully mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, there is a much greater, even when opinions differ, there is a sort of a much greater capacity for working through such matters and talking about such matters without like flying off the handle. Um, and all of this is the sort of thing that you know, 280 characters doesn't really lend itself to. Uh, And like that level of like vituperation and totally shutting down uh, the moment that some kind of uh, off-putting idea uh, enters the conversation. I don't know. I just, I don't encounter that in my day-to-day life. But then again, I have the ability to curate my day-to-day life uh, in Mm -hmm. a way that, I don't necessarily try to uh, or succeed in doing online. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I occasionally will like operate as an adjunct professor um, as I did for much of 2019 and will be doing hopefully in class in fall of this year and started doing this maybe five years ago when Already the scuttlebutt was that the younger generation were comprised entirely of militant puritanical scolds. Mm. And that's not really been my experience. I mean, I think that there's like, certainly there are more broadly shared attitudes about art and morality that are not attitudes that I share, nor do I think that they're particularly would be particularly commonplace in people of my generation who are attracted toward the arts, but I've really had largely like very positive back and forths with so-called, you know, abstemious finger wagging, like zoomers in a classroom setting. Um, like, and certainly where I'm coming from is not going to correlate always with where they're coming from. Uh, but that like total sort of brick wall thing that I think sort of happens online where there's some sense of like mortal offense being given if you fail to uh, correlate your opinions to those of somebody else. Uh, I, I, I just don't really encounter that in my life very much and it, I, I i guess that's something that gives some small hope uh yeah, to me absolutely at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah 
bring going back with space champion let's chop i kind of want to dive back in one of your one of my favorite pieces of yours is your piece on uh uh ready player one because it does incorporate kind of like your book here on goodbye dragon in it incorporates so much on what is existing around the film and you're dealing with a movie that yeah is all about ip property it's it's been pushed into this little this like nostalgia hellhole that is paradise for the characters in this movie i don't think a movie going audience when they approached ready player one was exactly seeing a very sad despairing vision of the future ahead but i guess i just want to know some of your thoughts regarding that and and where we're at now because the movie is a blockbuster is it wasn't like this is some like weird art house movie it was a big movie yeah well i mean when you bring up the case of a ready player one and to go back to my bemoaning the like piteous state of studio filmmaking part of the sadness of that is it's very exciting when you can see a formidable filmmaking intelligence using the full mechanism of the like industrial studio apparatus in a cool way. And I have an enormous fealty to little junky movies, i.e. Poverty Row Noir, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And, you know, small sort of spit and tape kind of productions but i do also like demillion excess and i do also like to see um a film made with every resource that the filmmaking capital has at its command that is as rich with ideas and is as propulsively put together as Ready Player One. And so it's not a mere like, you know, fuck Hollywood sort of thing. It's like, what a drag that all of that is there and could be used in so much like, so many better ways than it is presently being used. Um, As to the film itself i yeah i had i I re-watched it last year um and i can only say that my esteem for it and my admiration for it has only grown and that there is this you know deep streak of regret and melancholy uh of the nerd mr spielberg in late middle age uh looking back over a lifetime spent in childish pursuits. Um, And there's like a great, um, a rich vein of introspection, I think, in the thing, but also a real robust sort of heroic element to it and a real like dizzyingly romantic element to it that just moves me so, so much. And I think does... You know, I, I, you can sort of plug it into whatever your particular passion is, but you know, when motherfuckers are talking about zeroing out to save the oasis, it's like that's that's me, bro. Yeah. Got this film culture's in danger, dog. We got to zero out to save the <laughs> oasis. Like a hundred percent, like there is 
absolutely no ironic distance whatsoever there. That is wholly the fucking mindset. Um, uh, yeah, just a, a rich, emotional, wonderful film. It's a beautiful, yeah, no, it really is. And, and I, I, I should say, I'm not somebody who's consistently found worshiping on the altar of Steven Spielberg, and I was kind of blindsided by how much I did care for that movie. It really makes me think of like, the Spielberg of 1941. It's a which is 100% a film that I love so much as well. Yeah, um, it's like so good. I, I think I see them both of satires of a contemporary society because I, I love the ending of the movie so much because yeah, I guess it's a happy ending. I suppose that the kid saves the oasis and all this or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's there's such a rich irony though at that ending where he's signing over the contract. There's such an emphasis on the pen going on the page that obviously I don't think Spielberg's trying to beat you over the head with it, but I do think it's a much more downbeat indie. Well, I mean, and this is a thing that one encounters so rarely in films on that scale that uh, it's a bit disarming when you do is that it is at one and the same time, I think, like, affirmative in this very full-throated red-blooded way of what it's presenting and also has this auto critique in it it you know it is presenting two opposing ideas at the same time um and we're i think so used to being grateful if a single glimmer of an idea shows up (laughs) in a movie that have uh, you know this sort of tensile tug of war within the movie is like what a treat it's very rare i mean we don't see that a lot like you said i mean bringing back like the long gray line i mean that's a movie that i see is this you know they're they're very they have two opposing viewpoints there's there's a tremendous tremendous melancholy in that movie i mean however affirmative the uh you know final 40 and uh parade and presentation of arms at the end is this motherfucker just lived in West Point for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's and everything depressing. he did. Yeah, everything he did brought him back into it. He broke all those fucking dishes and he's back. In- <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, it's a, you ever see uh, Michele Suave's uh, cemetery man? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's like the end of cemetery man. It's like trying yeah. to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> engulf in front of him <laughs> again i should probably watch what i'm saying but i'm not sure we're gonna get that with the west side story remake but hey hope springs eternal this is like a, a a point i've reiterated so many times it's probably pretty exhausting by now but like at this point any distinct distinguishable personality that is operating on that level i'm grateful for and you know spielberg mm-hmm. is an example of you know somebody who's very like very uh agnostic towards and often hostile towards as a younger guy and the personality is one that i don't perhaps across the board jibe with but just by virtue of the fact that it's a personality it's like oh thank god yeah yes god, <laughs> like a fucking person i don't even care if i <laughs> like the person um it's like what a treat. Um, but do you mind if I peel off for a second here? Yeah. Use the head, grab a yeah, beer. For sure. Cracking open. <laughs>
Dude, you want to know the, the gross reality of who I am? Not only is this ice house, but if you could see, you'd notice there's no condensation because it's warm. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you have any more ice house around you right now? Is there an, a particularly icier house around you right now? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They got, I got another over here also warm, you know. I'm just lazy. You're sick fuck, man. The, dude, the only thing I like put hard discipline into is movies. That's it. Everything else, I'm like, well, fucking whatever, man. <laughs> dude, for sure. Honestly, I, it's amazing I dress myself. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just walking around in just super thin cloth shorts the last couple of days of just the world's worst t shirt on. Oh, yeah. I mean, it this is, is yeah. a stretch because, like, you know, a friend of mine, like, made this shirt. But, like, I tell you, <laughs> before that, man. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. That's a cat. Get out of here. <laughs> um, dude, this, I swear, Will, you got to get one of these. These rule. And so fucking you, weird. You, I can't you believe it exists. Your beer, you throw your beer in this thing. You just, you leave it in there. <laughs> you have it near you. It stays so cold. What is this product? Size cold beer. What is this product? Beer cooler thing. Yeah, my girlfriend's parents got us for (laughs) it. It's very nice. Um, Let's round this out here. Another point that I really wanted to talk about in regards to your book, and we've kind of already touched on this, but it's, um, you you, you talk about how Simon Lang was, you know, he was, he was, for as much as it could be at that time, it was a pretty big name. I mean, you said your grandpa saw Goodbye Dragon in. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely some heat coming into that movie, let's say. Yeah. Definitely some heat. And um, I do think that I may be looking through the wrong end of the telescope to some degree because the period in which he is really establishing himself as a name and I, and I mentioned a few other sort of uh, significant figures of that turn of the century like art house scene. This is also the time when I am in my late teens, early 20s and very, very charged up about film culture and attentive to things in a way that and plugged into things in a way that uh i don't think i would later be at least not with that same level of just like absolutely rabid youthful enthusiasm um so maybe these things seemed larger at the time but i can also find enough anecdotal evidence to suggest to me that there was at least still a little more reach for this kind of filmmaking in the United States of America at the turn of the century uh, than there is today. I mean, another instance would be, uh, I remember seeing Edward Yang's Yee Yee in Cincinnati, Ohio at the Esquire Theater with my father. And that, you know, the a however long, three and a half hour Taiwanese movie playing at a theater in Cincinnati, Ohio, that seems pretty fucking improbable uh, to me today. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that 
Um, there aren't robust scenes in certain major culture centers in the United States where certain figures are known quantities among art house regulars, but it just seems to have retracted somewhat. There seems to be a sort of element of like almost willful withdrawal. I can remember going, I mean, I'm from Kansas City, so I- Beautiful city. Great city. They had a theater that's now closed called the Tivoli. Oh, the Tivoli's uh, closed? You know, Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it did. I didn't know it Um, closed. That was my entry point to the show. I mean, this place ruled. I mean, I remember they had, you walk into the place, there was a gigantic poster of the devil probably right next to Made in the USA. Mm-hmm. Made in the USA. Um, right next to each other, right when you walk into the place. And I the remember- great, the, great, the greatest poster of all time by Raymond, Raymond Savignac, which yep. uh, stands in the entry to my apartment right now. There you go. So this was like a place that I, I can't, you know, I remember like, you know, they were running in big announcements, Claire Denis movies. They were running Kiyoshi Kurosawa movies. They were, you know, Leo's Carax. And you know, but- Obviously, the theater is closed, so that tells you where that goes. But it's you. I know you you talk about it, but I guess outside of like Hong Sang Soo, maybe you're a Pichit Pong Rasakal. I, I the art house figure is receding. I don't. I wouldn't say it's completely disappeared, but I would say that it's going further into the fog. Yeah, and 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 also, you know, it seems less and less viable or these things, these sort of operations, these sort of cinemas to function and this kind of cinema to be presented to a public outside of some kind of institutional protection, be it that of the film festival or be it that of the nonprofit. And what can I say other than uh, there's there's a terrible, uh, terrible loss that uh, seems to come with that. And this is, I mean, a point of uh, kind of constant befuddlement for me is because what I believe to have been a slightly uh, improved state of affairs, because that exists in my living memory, and I'm 40 years old, I'm not that fucking old, because I still have the memory of that, I find myself constantly uh, wondering, like, what's does this have to be what it is like did do we have to just resign ourselves to this uh, state of affairs to this slow retreat to being like beaten back into obscurity and suckling from the teat of whatever uh, institution will give us a couple of uh, drops of mother's milk uh, does it have to be this way is there no is there no way to uh, persist and even like grow or are we just is withering on the vine the uh, only possibility that remains for this art form and the people who care about the art form? I suppose we're just going to keep withering <laughs> and withering, but what we've got to do is zero out yep. to save the fucking oasis. Thank yep. you. That was exactly where I was going to go with it. <laughs> we just got to go harder and harder. It's got to convince people, man. I feel like we're not going hard enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We could go harder. You can always go harder, man. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm all for going harder. I, we do need to lift ourselves. I'm, I'm up. fully VR goggled out, one <laughs> fist in the air. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The iron giant is running in behind you as we speak, yeah, ready to fucking help out. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to drop a fucking Chucky. <laughs> that's right that's all we need to do we need to send chuck in yeah yeah he'll take care of us i got i got spawn over here <laughs> snap crackle and pop i don't know in there. what what else what other things do you have coming up uh, i mean I've, I've i've jugged a lot of these recently right now like i'm trying to well I should say I'm in the process with an enormous amount of assistance from two pals who run the Beacon Theater in Seattle, Washington. I'm in the process of putting together the first of what I hope will be a continuing series of zines uh, under the title Bombast. And I'm getting uh, a absolutely enormous uh, assist from uh, my pals Casey and Tommy over at uh, the Beacon Theater in making this thing happen. So a lot of the, a lot of my energy has been directed toward that recently, and I hope to be able to direct a great deal more. I'm also trying to do with my friend Matt Folden at Mast Books here in New York a print run of the last year of the Substack columns because. Many people have asked me, you know, is it possible to get this on a page because, and I'm very sympathetic to this uh, because I myself do not particularly like reading 17,000 word articles online. Uh, so also trying to get that together and you know, various other, uh, various other uh, snake oil operations going on. 2021 is either takeover or fucking die, one or the other. <laughs> the, going, at the battle, at the battle of That's Trenton, right. <laughs> General George Washington was uh, seen by an aide de camp, sort of absently scribbling on a piece of paper as uh, you know preparations were made for the crossing of the Delaware. And this was you know, <laughs> after forty-eight hours on the march, absolutely fried, uh, shut down for the evening, sort of cleaning up. And uh, this aide-de-camp uh, picks up the little piece of parchment that uh, General Washington's been scribbling on and uh, like Jack Torrance style, just says over and over again, victory or death, victory or death, victory or death, victory or death. That's the mindset. That's right. That's what we're doing this next year. James Halliday himself. Who plays safe in the race?